Mysterious-ish. Contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. I can't wait for my uh, young children to come on into my bedroom at three o'clock in the You're morning and tell me, <laughs> "Mommy, I froze up." <laughs> I literally probably well, okay. Considering back in May when Dylan had COVID and he woke me up at two o'clock in the morning and told me that he doesn't feel well, the fact that my response was, "Okay, what do you want me to do about it?" <laughs> I guess I don't know what that says about me as a wife, but <laughs> and then I took his temperature and it was like 103 something and I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> he actually doesn't feel good. He's not just waking me up to wake me up. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, does that make me a, like a mean wife? No. No, it's it's fine. He's fine. He survived. Yeah. He, he's fine. still kicking, so yeah, good. <laughs> Okay. Oh, shall we get to this terrible crime? Yeah, we shall. <laughs> um, so today I'm going to tell you, oh, listeners, chill after the the episode, like hang out with us for a little bit cuz we got we got some uh some news for you, some mm-hmm. little updates and some business to take care of, okay? Okay. Erica says as though she's a listener. <laughs> <laughs> She is to my story. I am. <laughs> okay, so today I'm going to tell you a survivor tale. Mm-hmm. I like me some survivor tales. So I, I heard this one on Morbid Podcast a couple years back, and it's just like, it's always stuck with me, and I think you'll see why once I tell it. Okay. So this is the story of Holly Dunn and Chris Mayer. Holly Dunn was a junior at the University of Kentucky, but she was actually from Evansville, Indiana. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. Um, So she was studying finance after switching from accounting because she said that just wasn't her jam. Uh, I don't think accounting is anyone's jam, to be honest, but here we are. Um, So in the summer of 1997, um, Holly and some friends rented an off-campus apartment so that she could take some summer classes because she was catching up because she switched majors. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So in late June of th- that year, one of Holly's friends turned 21. So Holly and her friends went out for drinks that night. You know, typical college student shit. Except for Caitlin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Listen, it's fine. I did go out for my 21st birthday, even though it was a Thursday. And I was drunk by 8 o'clock and asleep by 9 <laughs> Oh, hell yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's fine. It's fine. fine. (laughs) After entering a dive bar attached to a laundry mat, the group of girls saw a group of guys. Holly began chatting with the group of guys, and the topic of conversation eventually became the color of Holly's toenails. 
which were silver. <laughs> um, okay. One of the That's guys. A very nineties thing, silver it, nail polish. Seriously. Oh my god. Yeah, it didn't uh, die out until like the the mid aughts. So, oh, wow. <clears throat> what a time. Nostalgic. Uh, so, um, one of the guys in the group then stuck out his foot and told Holly that. He had silver nail polish on, too. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that guy was Christopher Mayer. Chris Mayer was from North Canton, Ohio, and he was majoring in lighting design at the University of Kentucky. So he was a theater guy. Ooh. The theater. The theater and a theater. Yes. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with us? <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Listen, if the listeners don't understand our banter and our jokes by now, I I don't I don't really know what they're doing here. <laughs> it's it's fine. It's fine. Um so oh I read that already. Um the girls and guys eventually parted ways and the girls invited the guys to a party that would take place the next day. It was a birthday party for the friend that turned twenty one. Okay. So Holly said that she couldn't stop thinking about Chris the whole way home. <clears throat> the next night at the party, Chris and Holly talked nonstop and eventually went for a walk. In Holly's book, Soul Survivor, she says that Chris was happiest when he was outdoors. Um, they continued to talk and discovered that their fraternity slash sorority were close and hosted events together occasionally. They also learned that they both grew up in tight-knit Catholic families and had older sisters. So they're realizing that they had a lot and quite a bit in common. Here is a quote from Holly's book that I mentioned. Uh, quote, Being with Chris was a new, exciting experience and yet so comfortable. We could talk for hours. He was unlike any guy I had ever hung out with before, a modern hippie of sorts. He wore necklaces he made by hand himself. One was a braided hemp necklace double looped around his neck with a tear-shaped jade stone at the base of his throat. He loved being outdoors and often hiked the Red River, Red River Gorge, a canyon system about an hour and a half from Lexington. He was a bicycle enthusiast and worked at the 10th Gear Bicycle Shop on Southland Drive. He loved to walk anywhere, everywhere and anywhere with absolutely no shoes on. So Chris was just like a super down-to-earth, chill, friendly dude. Mm -hmm. The next couple of weeks consisted of a lot of hangouts between Chris and Holly and resulted in a cute little budding relationship. Ooh. So Holly said, yeah, it's really freaking cute. They're like super in love. It's oh. so cute. So Holly said, quote, on a scale from like to love, we were firmly in the really, really like phase. He was truly someone special, and I could tell that this would be a relationship I would never forget. See, mm. it's just so cute. Mm. Mm, I can't wait to rip your hearts out and stomp on them. <laughs> just keep in mind that this season is true crime, so... <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, fast forward to the week of August 27th, 1997, when classes started. Chris was going to take Holly to a party that was being thrown by some of his frat brothers off campus. Uh, Chris rolled up to Holly's sorority house in his gold, 
Isuzu Trooper. I don't know how to say that word. Super sorry about it. Um, His car was named Buddy. Buddy? (laughs) Buddy. Oh, and then he just casually, you know, got out a megaphone to yell at Holly. Holly Dunn, come out. It's time to go. Okay. With a megaphone. It's just, it's so 90s. I can't. Ah, goodness. Love. (laughs) It's like the uh, 90s equivalent of standing outside your window with a boombox. Okay, but I want that. I also want that. That would be like... The cutest fucking thing ever. You know, like the the movie Easy A. Yes. Her whole motive about what she wants. Yeah, I want that. Like, yeah. I don't want. I don't want to go through what she did. But like, I just <laughs> like the eighty movie love shit. I want that. I I agree. I absolutely agree. Also, I love the movie Easy A. Oh my god, same. The cast is phenomenal. The plot yes. is so good. It's yes. so funny. It's just, mm-hmm. I just love it. It's so good. Luke, okay. Luke judges me all the time for watching it so much. No! Don't let him judge you. I love that movie. Same. Fuck him. <laughs> yeah, fuck him. Okay. <laughs> Back to this horrific um tale. <laughs> yes. So after a couple of hours at the party, uh, Holly and Chris decided that they were bored and they wanted to take a walk. So just like they did at the, you know, previous parties and probably they probably walked all like all the time. So Chris had previously lived in the house the party was being held at and said that he had used to walk the nearby train tracks. Chris's two friends, Mike and Ryan, overheard Chris and Holly talking about going on a walk and decided to go with them. So they, they just tagged along with this new couple. Okay. Um, so off they went. Chris had a small black backpack with a six-pack of beer inside. So the group of four walked down the road until they hit a dead end where the houses and the porch lights stopped. Um, They continued walking until they hit the train tracks and began walking alongside the train tracks. There was a general electric light bulb factory on one side of the tracks and a tall metallic tower that signaled when trains were coming ahead of them. So the group hung around and waited for a train to come by, but nothing ever did. Mike and Ryan passed the time by picking up rocks and launching them at the tower until they decided to leave because they were bored. Mm. Holly and Chris stayed back to have a little bit of alone time. Christopher. Mm, Christopher. Um, so the couple walked a little bit farther down the tracks and eventually found a place to sit and talk. Mm. Uh, talk. I don't know. I don't know what they were doing. Holly never states and honestly, it's none of our fucking business. So, Mm -hmm. uh, in her book, Holly says, quote, being alone was more fun than being at the party. Chris and I could always talk forever. It was so sweet. (laughs) Once they decided that it was getting really late, they decided to head back to the party. The whole path back was completely dark. Holly called it an endless shadow. So, like, mind you, it's probably, it's past midnight. Like, it's dark as shit. Right. Suddenly, as they're walking, there was a man standing in front of them. He had been hiding behind an electrical panel off of the right side of the tracks. 
and he asked Holly and Chris, where did your friends go? He had been watching them. He knew that there were four of them. Okay, weirdo. He told them to give him their money, and Chris placed himself between Holly and the apparent mugger. The one thing that Holly kept mentioning in her book was the mugger's eyes. She referred to them as black with no irises. Um, She also said that he spoke clear English, but he had a pretty strong Mexican accent. Um, And that he was shorter than the six foot five Chris and the five foot eight Holly. So they're both pretty fucking tall. Mm -hmm. And he was shorter than both of them. So after informing the man that they had no money because, hello, they're fucking broke ass college students. um, The man forced both of them to kneel. Uh, Chris complied and Holly wondered why. And then she realized that the man who was attacking them had something sharp in his hand, like an ice pick or a screwdriver. The man began going through Chris's uh, backpack and he didn't find even a cent. Um, Holly, trying to appease the attacker's desire for money, offered him her debit and credit cards. Chris offered the keys to his beloved car buddy in exchange for the man not touching Holly. So this whole time, Chris is just fully defending Holly, like telling the man, like, don't hurt her, do whatever you want to me, but do not touch her, like, leave her alone. Mm -hmm. So the man then took the straps from Chris's backpack. I think it was like a like a drawstring bag. That's what it sounds like to me, because you can't really remove straps from like a full on backpack. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. So the man took the straps from Chris's backpack and began tying Chris's wrists behind his back. Then he turned to Holly. He took her belt off and secured her hands behind her back. And the man kept telling Chris and Holly to stop looking at him. Like every single time they would like look at him, he would say, stop looking at me. That's going to come back multiple times. Okay. But Holly, Holly decided that she wasn't she wasn't going to listen to him and she stared him down because she kept telling herself, like, if I survive this, I'm going to remember every little detail of your face so that I can take you down. Right. Smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of really, really smart things that Holly does in this situation. And that's like how she survives. Honestly, like spoiler alert, she wrote a book. (laughs) Right. But um, so kept telling them to stop looking at him. Uh, They realized then that it was clearly not money he was after, but something else. After he finished tying Holly's hands, he turned back to Chris and began dragging him across the train tracks. Quote, Chris scrambled to get back up on his knees, wincing and screaming in pain as his body hit the metal and gravel and broken glass. So he just, like, grabbed him and was dragging him, wouldn't let him, like, walk on his knees or anything. Mm -hmm. So Holly followed them on her knees, not wanting to also be dragged. Um, The man pulled Chris into the ditch on the other side of the tracks, and Holly followed, obviously, and so he told them not to move that he had a gun and a friend who would be back at any minute. The man ran back across the tracks to the electrical box where he had left a duffel bag. Holly could hear him ripping fabric. 
and when he returned, he tied up Holly and Chris's legs and gagged them both. Holly instinctively stuck her tongue out to keep it from blocking her mouth. That is so smart. Mm -hmm. If you're ever like in this situation and someone is like trying to gag you, stick your tongue out as far as you can. And if like, obviously Holly had it easier because it's dark as fuck outside. And so she couldn't like, he couldn't tell that she was sticking her tongue out, but like stick your tongue as far as you can out before they notice. So the man would return to this duffel bag across the tracks multiple times during this attack. The whole time that the man was busy with Chris and his duffel bag, um, Holly was busy working her hands out of her belt restraint. During one of the times when the man was at his duffel bag, Holly moved herself over to Chris and pulled the gag out of his mouth. Holly was in the middle of trying to untie Chris's wrist restraints when the man returned. Oof. He was mad that their gags were loose and that they were talking. He told them that he had just escaped jail. And again, he had a gun and a friend on his way back. So this is like he keeps telling them like, I have a gun and a friend. He's going to come back. Mm -hmm. He just keeps telling them this along with stop looking at me like, sir. So he retied Holly's wrists, replaced the gags, and once again told them to not look at him. But again, Holly just kept staring at him. Chris continued to beg for Holly's life. And every time they tried to plead with the man, he just seemed to get more angry. The man was anxious and pacing around as if trying to decide what to do next. The man disappeared again. And this time he returned with a massive rock in his arms. I won't get the same effect if I paraphrase, so straight from Holly's book, quote, He took the rock and held it over Chris, who lay there, face down in the dense undergrowth. Chris didn't even see what was coming. And then, without a word, this utterly evil man let the stone drop. More than 50 pounds of rock came crashing down onto Chris's head. Yeah. Yeah. This is a heavy one, guys. This is heavy. Holly tried to yell, but she couldn't. Um, Instead of panicking, she said that she felt immense peace with the fact that she was probably going to die. She began to ask God for forgiveness, and she thought about her family. The man then came after Holly. Uh, He untied her feet and began trying to sexually assault her. She screamed and clawed and kicked and he grabbed his strange pointy weapon and stabbed it into Holly's neck a few inches below her left ear. Oh, God. Yeah. It was a few moments later that Holly heard Chris make a gurgling noise. She... This is really rough, guys. I'm sorry. Holly begged her attacker and rapist to turn Chris's head so that he didn't choke on his own blood. <sighs> I'm sorry. To Holly's surprise, the man went over to Chris as if to help him. And when he returned to Holly, he told her that Chris was gone and that she, quote, don't have to worry about him no more. The man then raped Holly 
and during the assault, she had the wherewithal to remove pieces of her fingernails and dig her fingers into the ground around her. She wanted to leave as much of her DNA as possible. Mm -hmm. I cannot stress this. That is so smart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Literally, I know that people are like, like all these women are like leaving their fingerprints and like pulling out tufts of hair to leave in their Ubers. It's so fucking smart. It is. It's so smart. If you can, and that's why, like, if you're ever being attacked, God forbid, scratch the shit out of whoever it is because they mm-hmm. always pull shit out from under your fingernails. And that that DNA is vital. It can literally solve murders. It's good. Mm-hmm. Fight for in- your fucking life. Huh? I, I was watching uh, Rookie Feds last night, and that's what happened in the um, episode. She scratched the dude's neck, and they were able to find him. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Leave your fucking DNA. Leave like make sure you get some of his DNA. Like do whatever you can to make sure that they're going to solve this shit. Mm-hmm. Holly just she was so smart. I can't believe that she like had the the wherewithal while she's being attacked and raped like to do all of these things to like to think that far ahead. I just it's just wild. Good for her. Mm hmm. So Holly um, pleaded with, pled, pleaded, pled with her attacker, pled. pleaded with her attacker. Now, I think it's pled. This, haven't we had this discussion before? Well, because it's different with like, oh, he pled guilty. He pleaded guilty. He pleaded not guilty. I don't know. I think it's pled. Holly pled. Sure. Holly begged her attacker not to kill her. <laughs> Here we go. I don't know if it should be pleaded or pled. So there we go. And now it doesn't even sound like a word to me. So um, he told her that he wasn't going to kill her. Um, He eventually removed one of her earrings and a ring from her finger. In her book, Holly said that neither of these pieces of jewelry had any like financial value So the only reason that this guy presumably took this ring and earring from her, because he only took the one fucking earring, was so as a souvenir. What? Yeah, it's disgusting. So the attacker then gathered up a bunch of leaves, twigs, and branches and put them over Chris and Holly's bodies. Holly thanked the man. Thanked? She thanked him for not killing her. And then he, the man, picked up a board and began to beat her with it. Quote, he raised this board and slammed it into my face over and over until it had lacerated my cheeks, fractured my eye socket, and broken my jaw. I turned my face toward the ground, raising my right arm to block the blows. He struck the back of my head and split my scalp in multiple places. I slipped in and out of consciousness. Thankfully, here's just a little bit of grace. Holly was unconscious for most of the beating, and she said that she felt little pain. She said that she mostly felt, like, the force and pressure of the blows, but she didn't really feel the pain. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, the man, thinking that he had killed Holly, left their bodies under the leaves, twigs, and branches, and walked away. Holly did not see him leave. Uh, She was in and out of consciousness for some time. She said she doesn't know how long. She says she does not remember waking up, seeing Chris, or standing up and looking around when she finally came to. 
She does say that she sort of remembers seeing the light of a TV coming from a house in the distance, that every other house around it was dark. She says that her next conscious memory was bursting into that stranger's house. Four male students of the University of Kentucky lived in this house, and one of the guys, his name was Chad Goats. I'm not sure. I think it's Goats. Uh, like G-O-E-T-Z. Chad was yeah, Chad, Thad, and Brad. Uh, Chad <gasps> was sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> really? No, I don't fucking know. Okay. I was like, oh my god. Nah, this is just Chad. So okay, Chad, Chad was sitting in the living room watching TV and studying when Holly burst through the door, covered in blood and screaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Holly told Chad to call 911 and that her friend was still out there. Chad had to take a moment to decide if this person needed help or if, if she was coming to attack him. Chad. <laughs> Because, like, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, dude. Like, I, too, would fully fucking panic if some random stranger burst into my house and just started screaming. True. So, um, he he took a moment (laughs) to make that decision. But then he walked Holly to the couch and called 911. And there's actually, like, Holly was like, I don't want to sit on your couch. I'll ruin it. Because she knew that she was, like, covered in blood. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but he was like, dude, it's leather. Sit the fuck down. (laughs) So he called 911 and the dispatch call was recorded at 2.48 a.m. So Holly was taken to the hospital and began to get treatment for her numerous wounds. Uh, Like she said, she had a broken jaw, a fractured eye socket, three large wounds in her head that took 16 staples to close. A puncture wound in her neck and numerous cuts and bruises on her face. Once her parents arrived at the hospital, it was her father who broke the news to her that Chris had died in the attack. So uh, now on to the investigation. Um, The police department immediately determined and told the public that this was a random isolated incident that they shouldn't worry and should, but should come forward with any information they might have. Chris's parents offered $10,000 to anyone who gave information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person who killed Chris, but anonymous donors sent in money and the reward was eventually raised to $20,000. Holly provided her statement and worked with a sketch artist to create a sketch of the assailant. Uh, She remembered that he had dark wavy hair that came just below his ears, a thin mustache, and square framed glasses. She told the detective on the case that he had a Mexican accent, was short in stature, about five foot six in average build. She said that the sketch that create that was created looked remarkably like the man who had attacked her and Chris. Oh wow. I feel like they, they do a damn good job. They do, and it's it's amazing. You know, like the the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez's sketch looks just oh, fucking yeah. like him. Ted Bundy's mm-hmm. looks just fucking like him. Like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. And that's, like, a composite of, like, everyone who has seen them. You know what I mean? Right. It's just wild. So, Detective Sorrell, who was the detective on the case, followed leads and looked into potential suspects for the next year and a half with no luck. 
He was only able to eliminate hundreds of potential suspects, but he could not find any suspects. He could only eliminate them. Um, He had worked with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit to put together a psychological and behavioral profile of the assailant, but this profile did not prove to be very useful, and the investigation continued. One day in May, nearly two years after the attack, Detective Sorrell showed up at Holly's apartment and told her that they think they know who did it. Um, He showed her a picture of the man, and it was him. Uh, He then told Holly that the lead came up to them following a couple of murders that occurred in Texas. Um, They used an FBI database called VICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Uh, This program contains details of criminal activity and connects unsolved crimes across the country. Because, you know, um, (laughs) police jurisdictions don't speak to each other. (laughs) So, the murders in Texas had just enough similarities to Holly and Chris's case that the program was able to make a connection. So, like, the the things that were noted were, like, the um, distance from train tracks, the, um, the way that they were murdered, the way that they were tied up, like, things like that. The assailant was more than just a random dude murdering college students. He was a fucking serial killer. Oh. With more than 30 aliases, he would assume, over the course of his criminal career. He had 30 different names that he went by. Law enforcement called him Rafael Resendez Ramirez, but the media called him the railroad killer because we're original and clever. Mm -hmm. Uh, The man was described as a drifter who boarded freight trains and traveled the country. He would target people who lived close to the railroad tracks. Um, He had previously been charged many times with making false statements to federal authorities, carrying fraudulent identification, possessing a gun while being an illegal immigrant and a convicted felon, and re-entering the U.S. after being deported. Uh, This man did not have a squeaky clean record by any fucking means. Um, he was deported from the U.S. many, many times. He was convicted of other crimes, such as destroying private property, grand theft auto, burglary, aggravated assault, falsely representing himself as a U.S. citizen, trespassing, carrying a loaded firearm, and receiving stolen property. I'm sure there are many, 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 many more. Oh. Yeah. So, on June 13th, 1999, Rafael Resendez Ramirez would surrender himself to the police. Two days prior, on July 11th, Texas Ranger Drew Carter was told to call a woman named Manuela Matarino Karkiewicz. Manuela. Mm-hmm. Um, this Manuela was Resendez's sister. Mm. Manuela had actually been working with Sergeant Carter for a few weeks. She gave the birth certificate of the so-called Rafael Resendez Ramirez, which stated that his legal birth name was actually Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez. Beautiful. Sorry, I can't Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he had actually taken the name Maturino which belonged to his stepfather. So he was actually called Angel Matarino Resendez. See what I mean? So many names. 
Yeah, that's a, yeah. <laughs> a little excessive, <laughs> bud. Um, so working with Angel's sister paid off. Um, I don't like calling him Angel. I'm going to call him Resendez, okay? Okay. Um, working, yeah, 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 yeah. Working with Resendez's sister paid off. Uh, Resendez wanted to surrender himself to the police under a couple of conditions. Um, I fucking hate when they do this shit. Like, fuck you. You don't get to, like, you don't get to decide these things. Just stop being a fucking murderer. Mm. So Mm -hmm. he wanted to be treated humanely in jail. No. No, not gonna fucking happen. Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, I lost my place because I dropped my phone. Okay, there we oh. go. Um, he also wanted to have a psychological evaluation done. That will come back later. And he wanted to have his family be able to visit him in jail. And the only person who was allowed to take him in custody was Sergeant Carter because Sergeant Carter had like built a rapport with his family and so they trusted him. So he was the only one that was allowed to take this fucker to jail. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, fucking dumb. <sighs> So, on July 13th, 1999, Texas Ranger Drew Carter stood on an international bridge in El Paso, Texas, waiting for the railroad killer to pull up in the passenger seat of his brother's white pickup truck. When Angel Matarino Resendez arrived, he shook hands with Sergeant Carter, and Carter cuffed him and took him into custody. Uh, This is getting to be a little bit long already, so I'm not going to draw out the trial. Um, As far as they knew at that point, uh, there were only nine victims of Angel Matarino Resendez across multiple states and jurisdictions. So it's literally Israel Keys all over again. So like, this is just, it just becomes like a huge, like, what state do we charge him in? Like, what happens if he gets a guilty sentence here? Do we ship him somewhere else to be charged? Like, it's just a fucking mess. Mm Mm-hmm. Which that was Israel Keys's goal, but I don't think it was this guy's goal. Right. I don't think he was that smart. Um, so the trial we are going to talk about is the state of Texas versus Angel Matarino Resendez uh, for the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. Um, he had actually committed two murders in the same county in Texas, but they were focusing on Dr. Benton because of the amount of evidence found against Resendez. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, like, the obvious, obviously, the issue with doing things like that, like picking and choosing victims from the same county or state or jurisdiction, like, then the other victim's family doesn't feel like they get closure or justice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I It's just, it's a fucking mess. So, I said that I wasn't going to draw out the trial, and here I am drawing out the trial. Sorry. <laughs> So Holly would obviously be the star witness for the prosecution because, duh. So Resendez and his court-appointed attorneys did not deny that he committed any murders. Instead, <laughs> he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. All right. Do you remember the psychological evaluation that he wanted so bad? Mm. <laughs> ah! <sighs> uh, so the court had to determine if Resendez had known the difference between right and wrong at the time of the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. The prosecution had to prove that he was not insane, that he did know the difference between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. That would secure them a guilty verdict. 
The defense experts testified that Resendez suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and claimed that he had a delusional perception of the world, believing himself to be half human, half angel. No. This fucking guy. This fucking guy. The prosecution countered that he was actually a calculated killer. He used aliases and disguises to evade capture. Um, They wanted to prove that he was intelligent and a master of manipulation. Resendez sent many letters to media outlets, quote, filled with his delusional religious ramblings and his tale about being half angel and having special powers, unquote. Unquote. <laughs> I, I can't get into all the shit that this man did to try to convince people of his insanity plea, but God damn is he a fucking manipulative prick. Fuck this guy. That's all. We need shirts that just say fuck this guy. I love that. <laughs> That's Ashlyn. it. Yeah. <laughs> New uh, first merch idea. <laughs> <laughs> so the jury deliberated for 10 hours before coming to a verdict. Angel Matarino Resendez, a.k.a. Rafael Resendez Ramirez. I just realized that those are all R's. Wow. That's kind of fun. <laughs> this guy sucks. Um, so... Resendez was found guilty as charged of capital murder. So this fucker, after his bullshit insanity plea fell through, decided that he wasn't going to fight the death penalty anymore because the death penalty was better than sitting in jail for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. I fucking hate this guy. During the sentencing phase, the jury deliberated for an hour and 45 minutes, and then they sentenced him to death. Good. He would be on death row until June 27th, 2006, when he was executed by lethal injection in Texas. Bye-bye. Fuck this guy. Is that like a shot of some sort? Yes. Okay. Did you watch? You watched Dahmer. That's what they, that's how they executed um, John Wayne Gacy. Okay. You know, in like the last episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Or the second to last episode when John Wayne Gacy yeah. appears. That's how they mm-hmm. killed him. So, okay. So, let's let's turn this around here. So, as for Holly, this woman, she's, she's fucking amazing. You guys, she's amazing. Um, she actually met a man named Jacob Pendleton. Like, I think she met him the same year the attack happened. But he was the first man that she ever dated after the attack. Um, she has since married Jacob Pendleton. And they have two boys of their own her oldest son is named william christopher in honor of chris she has also opened an advocacy center for children and adults who are victims of intimate crimes it provides a safe reporting location for these people to go to and they are located in evansville evansville indiana um i think they're called holly's hope Holly also wrote a book about her experience and how she moved on with her life after the attack. It is called Soul Survivor. That's S-O-L-E, like only survivor, not soul like soul. Uh, The inspiring true story of coming face to face with the infamous railroad killer. This book was my primary research throughout or primary source throughout my research. Um, It's. It's a great read. Honestly, it's very emotional. So, like, get the tissues before you start it because it gets pretty intense. Yeah. Sweet. Life is great. Everything is fine. The world is on fire. Yes. 
Okay, we'll see. You. Oh wait, we have announcements. <laughs> wait, Holly's house. Holly's house. That's what it's called. I, I found it. Thank you. I thought it was Holly's Hope or something like that. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Holly's house. So yeah, if you're located in Evansville, Indiana, I don't actually know if Holly's Hope is still. Fuck, I said it. <laughs> Holly's house is still like running, but I really super hope so. Anyways, yes. Holly's amazing and uh, super sad that Chris died and like sorry that their relationship didn't get to go where it was. But I'm really glad that Holly like found her her one and has made a life for herself. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is episode 18. As you know, we take breaks, breaks. <laughs> between seasons. So we will have um, episode 20, episode 19 and 20. And then we will take our typical six week break and we will be back on March 14th. But again, you get a couple more episodes, so don't tune out yet. And uh, Erica, do you want to do we want to tell them what our next season is going to be or do we want to just uh, surprise them? I say a surprise. OK, OK. Sorry, guys. Uh, Erica has spoken. You don't get to know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm but not. It's a good one. It is. It's a good one. I'm so excited. OK, that's all we got for you today. And uh, I'm going to go scream about how expensive life is. Hmm. Yeah. Scream into the fucking void. Fuck them. You guys all scream into the void too. It's probably good for 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 stuff for Mm -hmm. frustration and shit. Okay. All right. We'll catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye forever. Thank you for listening to Mysterious Ish. All episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Follow us on social media at Mysterious Ish Pod. If you have topic suggestions, questions, or stories to share, you can email us at mysteriousishpod at gmail.com or visit our website at mysteriousishpod.com. Make sure to come back next week for another discussion about the mysteries of the universe.